Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. My name is Joshua Bennett, and I am honored to be in conversation with the poet Justin Rovios Monson this week. I guest edited this month's special issue of the magazine entitled The Practice of Freedom alongside Tara Betts and Sarah Ross. The issue focuses on poetry and visual art produced by incarcerated artists, as well as the writings of their friends and their family, their teachers and loved ones. In my estimation, Justin Monson is one of the most courageous, original, daring poets working today. I first encountered his work three years ago as a judge for PEN America's Writing for Justice Fellowship and was absolutely taken aback from the very first lines. The work shimmered. Monson has a fantastic ear and a citational breath that is truly a wonder to behold. It's clear that he reads and listens to everything. Post-colonial theory, 90s hip-hop, erasure poetry, it's all there. All of these traditions are part of the world Monson paints on the page and is generous enough to share with us. In this week's episode, Monson and I get into literary ancestors, his top five rappers of all time, and what the future of poetry in this country might look like if we are brave enough to invest in our young people. He is currently at work on his debut collection of poems, American Inmate. He spoke to us from the Michigan Department of Corrections in Freeland, Michigan. To start things off, here's Monson reading Notes for If I Fade Away, Brownout 03, featuring Robert Haas, Jay-Z, and Kendrick Lamar. This to remind you that I loved you way back. You, with your sleepless rivers and strings of power lines, titans gathered into formations of tender flesh and luminous pleasures. You were always moving. Longing, we say, because desire is full of endless distances. An apartment building. Two boys, different shades of brown. Son above, acting as father. Prayer is two fists arcing. Brown boy with good hair choked by the parentheses of his own shoulders. Broken horse. Please don't mistake these notes for elegies. These are the breaks. The summer where I learned of hunger and the absence of pain. Bridgewater. That slat heap hoopty moored in our oak-ridden suburbs. Glimmers of future lives. Sashabaw, Dixie, maybe. Loose change for 75-cent conies. The big homies pushing bags behind the skate park. All the white paint peeling off the divider wall. The chain-link fence we tore back between our cracked pavement and the fairway. The brownout that melted five days. How I dipped my feather-light body in the tub to keep cool. The water searching me like so many soft lights. The general mind was hollow back then, and I did then as I do now. Sketched your patterns into the margins of my ribs. This was before, meet me at the corner wash, or your turn to go to the marathon, became slang for the lies we believed. Before the 3 a.m. street lights, the palms crowded with earth tones. Before I learned logic, and before we should have read Hamlet. Lord, we know who we are, yet we know not what we may be where I learned to be in the middle of bright islands and dime bags. Those whisper-filled trees, the pavement begging to kiss my knees. Man, that's gorgeous. Thank you. I have a question for you about thinking about the way you write about fading. There's this wrestling with concreteness, right? Or maybe our lack of concreteness as human beings in your work that I'm really interested in. So for you, are, are the poems proof that you were here, proof that you survived? 
what what kind of work are the other poems doing as as memorials you know of, of the life you've lived and and as you know to paraphrase your own writing what what you might become what kind of work are the poems doing in that sense in that sense i, I think yeah i mean you kind of hit it on the nose it's really just a, it's the catalog the fact that yeah i'm here you know what i mean because it's easy i think you know, as somebody who's incarcerated, to feel like you're a ghost. You know what I mean? Because there's there's another poem in the manuscript called "When I Ask My Ex uh, How It Was When I Left." She tells me, "Like you died, but we're still alive." And that encapsulates a lot of it for me, because it's easy to feel like you know you you don't really matter. I shouldn't say you don't matter, but it just feels like you're in like a twilight zone sometimes. So a lot of it's the catalog, just the fact that I'm you know here, I'm I'm, I'm I exist still. You know. Wow. You got another line in uh, this poem, Everybody Dies, where you talk about all the, all the men you know talking too much. Uh, and, you, and you also talked a bit about your love of hip-hop and the DJ. And I feel like hip-hop gives you more of a, of a sense of exorbitance, at least, at least in terms of the space you have to move. Poetry, by comparison, at least poetry on the printed page, is often quite brief. So I'm wondering, why did you choose this this art form that is so tied to to brevity? Does that formal constraint sense you? Has that helped liberate your work in some way? What is it about the brevity of poetry that speaks to you? Oh, it's, yeah, the formal constraint I think definitely is kind of it's giving me space to breathe. But I get caught with that a lot too, and I think maybe a lot of it has to do with like I'm a pretty decisive person. But when it comes to art, I'm like I, it's, it's really hard for me to grasp um, wrap my head around sometimes because I get caught in this state where I feel like poetry isn't enough but novels or anything long form prose you have one minute remaining or long form prose is too much hmm. so I, I'm, I'm finding myself now trying to find a way to like do hybrid works but I, I'm just I'm struggling you know but uh, oh, I'm gonna have to call back sorry about this hello this is a prepaid debit call from Justin victimized or extorted by this prisoner please contact GTL customer service to accept this call, press zero. Yeah, I, the more I think about it, too, I mean, in regards to the brevity, I think a lot of the whole sampling music and just different references, I sample, um, or I reference Barthes a lot and, and Foucault, or I try to at least, and I, I think a lot of that comes from having to squeeze all of this this feeling and this information and, and just, you know, in a, in a small amount of language. And in trying to do that, I think with these references, one of the things I would like to do with my work is hopefully people will feel curious and say, oh, this is, what part of this is Jay-Z? Or what part of this is Robert Haas? Or what part of this is Barthes? And then maybe go read that book or listen to that song. So now you're entering a whole universe of, of different things and constant references, you know what I mean? And it's more all-encompassing than um, just a single line in a single poem, I think. And that's something that I really want to pursue. Yeah, man. And though we've never met I feel a kind of kinship with you in part because you're always working with a bunch of different traditions at the same time, right? And you do it in a way that's rigorous and like it really matters to you, which I appreciate. Um, there's a kind of deep intimacy that I think you help create between these traditions that is teaching your reader something about the way you want the work to be approached. Um, the level of seriousness that you want it to be approached with. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, wow, yeah, that, that that's very well, <laughs> you put that perfectly. I mean, hip-hop is fine art, man, you know what I mean? And I think that every aspect of uh, the life a person lives, I mean, I'm in, I'm in prison, but that's not the only thing, you know what I mean? I have different interests and all that, so I think bringing all those things together is something that, yeah, I've been trying to do, so 
And that that being not the only thing, I just I just want to linger there for a second because I think that's another part of of your work that really resonates, particularly when you write about love, right? Because I think the moments where you take us to a place where we're talking about not just love under the conditions of of confinement, but really just how is love possible at this present stage of of capitalism, right? I think your work gives us such a robust language for that. Can you talk about why it's important to have those moments of of love and intimacy across distance in your work? I imagine it's, you know, just a part of your everyday life, but why does it show up in the work so powerfully and consistently? Um, I decided years ago that, I shouldn't say I decided, I discovered that I'm a love poet. A lot of the things that (laughs) compel me to write are because of that, and I don't just mean like romantic love, but I think that everything that I've written, even if it is about something very specifically like prison or something like that, carries notes of that. And that's really important to me because, to be frank, I mean, I've read a lot of prison poetry. I mean, I don't really like to call it that, but I've read a lot of poems by people who are, in, poems by people who are incarcerated and writing. And even the good stuff, sometimes I have a hard time with because I'm here and I, I just, sometimes it's hard for me to read like, oh, it's so hard because it is hard. But reading that, I, it's, it's hard for me to not feel tokenized. Uh, and I think that's something I struggle a lot with too regarding representation, and you know, because you can have joy and happiness and love in your life right now. I'm in love right now, mm. and it's it's beautiful. You know what I mean? So it's hard for me to escape that, and then also be like, oh man, it's just so hard in here, and you know, the, the fences have kept my body, which I also do. I which I also say, and you know, a lot of my work because that's the reality of it. But I, I feel like it's unfair for me to talk about my experiences um, and at least center on things that I, in my opinion, feel like I'm tokenizing myself. And I, 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 I struggle with that a lot, actually. The contemporary poet Taylor Johnson has a beautiful poem that ties into some of what we're talking about here. It's called Similes. And the poem opens with them writing, nothing is like jail. Nothing resembles it or approximate it. Nothing is like being detained except for being detained. Right. And the title of the poem is Similes. Right. And so part of what I think Johnson is is working through there are the ways in which the language of comparison, uh, what Wilderson has called elsewhere, the ruse of analogy, mystifies something that shouldn't be mystified, which is that only a cage is a cage. Right. And part of what I appreciate about your work is I think it insists on the singularity of of that experience right, of being incarcerated in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, too, about, I mean, I, you could probably say about any experience, I guess, uh, especially any, like, traumatic experience, but I've never read a poem talking about prison or incarceration that I read it and was like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. And it's not because they didn't do a good job. Again, I've talked about Dwayne Betts before. I mean, Dwayne Betts does a fantastic job. I've read a lot of different stuff where I'm like, yeah, that's this is this is it, you know? But nothing will really compare to the, like, the singularity of that experience because, number one, because it's so personal once you like really get down to it and you're involved in it, but also because there's just these, there's so many, there's so many contradictions because on one hand it could be like the violence and the crazy things that happen here, but on the other hand, it's just the daily monotony, you know what I mean? The boredom on one hand, it's the loneliness on the other hand, it's being surrounded by so many people. So it's just this thing that constantly hits you and it's hard to actually fully describe. So you can only really get a glimpse I think, unless you're really experiencing it. Mm. Okay. So then I have a question about, Another one of your poems I really like, which is uh, Poetics, Midsummer 2016, Fragments from a Freestyle, right? Um, And you have this portion and where you say, when life gave me lemons, I puckered up, 
sought out the tree, found it bright and full, planted a peach tree beside it, right? Uh, and that stands is so full for me for a lot of different reasons, but in no small part because I think it gives me a vision of a, a path forward, right? Like it strikes me that when you're planting that peach tree and, that, and any conflict you have with this reading, I appreciate, you know, and I love to think through it together. But when you're planting that peach tree, you're saying that there's something outside the conditions you've been given that you want to offer the reader, right? There's a path forward that you're forging through the poems. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you think the, the future of American poetry is, right? What, what for you is the future of this craft you love as you see it? And what are your wildest dreams for it? I think the wildest dreams portion of that is actually where I'd have to center because to be honest with you, uh, even going into this, uh, this interview, I don't really have any formal training. I don't have any, uh, any huge experiences. I'm just a dude, you know what I mean? Who is, who's in the joint, who just happened to stumble upon writing poetry, you know? So, uh, as regards to tradition and the future of it, it's hard for me to say because there's so much happening right now. I mean, right now, listen, in America, it, <laughs> I mean, it's heavy right now. You know what I mean? There's so much room for growth and it, it, a lot of, a lot's happened. It's just, we're in some historic moments. What I want to see, I want to see more hybrid works. I want to see more rawness. I want to be able to go beyond pain and beyond oppression. And I want to see people who wouldn't otherwise be looking at poetry, looking at it because of, I mean, these cultural references that I've been talking about. I want to see poets become, I want to say public figures, but I want to be able, I want to see that, that level of that hunger I, you just see so many people doing work now that's really important, and I hope they get a huge platform for that. I mean, you, you know, I, 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 the list of names goes on, but I mean, uh, Dwayne Betts, I mean, that's, I mean, him alone, Nate Marshall, Dwayne Betts, Aja Monet, I, 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 I could go on forever. I want to see, not necessarily competition, but again, when you look back to hip hop, you see these different labels, and hip hop's going through a sort of renaissance right now, and I, and I want to see that for poetry. For sure, for sure. And also, as a self-taught poet, I want to just shout you out real quick for talking about what it means to teach yourself, you know, how a poem should live on the page. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think we need more more self-taught poets getting the kind of work you're doing out into the world, man. So thank you for that. All right. Who are your literary ancestors? Who do you think of as, as the people who left you an inheritance, right, that you're pulling from to do the work you're doing now? For poets, let's see. Definitely, again, Dwayne Betts. I mean, the dude, you know, I mean, whenever I read about somebody who haven't been in the joint or anything like that, I'm like, okay, you know, it's possible. So definitely Dwayne Betts. Patrick Rosal, Ross Gay, uh, Whitman, Ashbery, I'd say a little bit. Man, the list goes on. Maggie Nelson has been a huge influence in my work, though I haven't done any uh, like creative nonfiction. Jay-Z, <laughs> Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole. I mean, I grew up listening to these people, Wale. Right now, I've been listening to a lot of Griselda, and I think that there's something in that that, like, kind of sparks me because of the level of, like, old school. It's, it's really pushing boundaries, but at the same time, like, shouting out and going back to, like, the 90s in terms of hip-hop. So I think that uh, I find that I try to capture some of that and put in my work, whatever that means. I mean, actually, wow, that's a, that's a big question, man, because I, I feel like there's there's so many... I mean, and especially in the work that I've been trying to do, there's just so many references that it's impossible for me to name all of them, but that's, that's definitely a few of them. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful list. Uh, you have a poem called Top Five, and given that you're a hip-hop head, I feel like our conversation would be incomplete if I did not ask if you'd be willing to share your top five with us, your top five MCs. <laughs> Ooh, right now, that's tough, man. Ooh, 
okay. I can't put them in order though, because like there's just different aspects that you know what I mean. But right now, definitely Jay Z. You got to go. Jay Z, Drake, Lil Baby, Benny the Butcher, and uh, Nas. I say Nas. Now you know what? I- I'm sorry to Nas, but I got Kendrick Lamar. Oh, okay. That's a good swap, actually. Can you tell us a bit about your hometown, or where you grew up, what the, the textures and sounds of it were, and uh, how, if at all, you feel like that set you on your path to becoming a writer? I grew up outside of Detroit, to be more fair, outside of Pontiac, Michigan. So that's about, I'd say, 45 minutes to an hour north of Detroit. I'm in mostly white suburbs, a town called Clarkston, Michigan. I went to a primarily all-white school, so I think that growing up uh, being biracial really influences a lot of my work now and just kind of who I am as a person. And, and to be honest with you, is perhaps part of the reason why I'm in prison, because I think that in trying to establish like my personhood amongst like my peers, I think for me, it was, okay, whatever I do, I'm going to do it to the biggest extent. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was, you know, drug dealing, it was crime. And I mean, I've grown, you know, quite a bit past that. But I think that that level of, I guess I could call it desire. That level of desire, that that fire that I had, I think carried on to other areas of my life. Um, I, I didn't grow up in the hood or anything, you know. I was I grew up in the suburbs, but we were hood adjacent, I guess you could say. So I think that seeing mm-hmm. both sides of uh, both sides of things really influenced a lot of things I'm doing now, and then really shaped who I am as a person. What do you think was underneath that pressure? Because that really resonates with me as someone who was born in the Bronx but then moved to Yonkers, which certainly wasn't much better than the, the Bronx in any of the ways my parents thought it would be. But I think that that pressure for, for young boys growing up, I guess, in the hood or hood adjacent, as you say, to be hardened, right? To always be prepared to engage in moments of violence that, that might arise or not arise, how did you navigate that as you got older? Because you talk about being sort of past that now. But how did you navigate that as a young person? And you said it shows up in the... Do you think it's still showing up in the writing right now even as an adult? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense of recklessness, I think, that I probably won't ever let go of. And I don't mean reckless in the sense of it has to result in violence or anything like that. But there's always going to be the questioning of authority and just that, again, that general, that desire to not even fit in, but just know that, okay, maybe I won't fit in in this scenario, but I'm going to be the best that I can at what I'm doing so that people will be like, okay, yeah, you're he, doing something. So navigating that as a teenager, it resulted in, you know, doing things that led me to come to prison. But even now, you know, I struggle with, <laughs> I think I've said that a lot today, I struggle with a lot of things. Um, one day I'll go see the parole board and they'll ask me why I did what I did. I'm in here for robbery uh, from when I was 16. And I'll have to explain to them and I'll have to tell them how I've grown. But there is an aspect of me that is scared of that because there are parts of me that haven't changed. And not to say I'm going to you know, do it. The crime part is gone. But there are aspects of me that there is that relentlessness there that I learned and having to grow up and you know, learn how to be a man in a single parent home in the midst of trying to establish myself amongst my friends and my peers. There's always, I mean, it's, it's tough. It was tough, you know. Yeah, and I think that falls out of a lot of contemporary literature, the kind of experiences you're describing, which I think are much more generally dispersed than it is easy to admit. 
right? That so many of our boys in this country are growing up with those sort of pressures you describe every day, right? And we've, we've devised, I think, no positive institutional mechanisms to serve those young people. Our schools are, as many have said, either a pipeline to prison or just part of a carceral continuum, right? Our prisons are filled with brilliant boys and men that lived in a society that made no room for them, right? To be fully expressive. And I think your work, man, is just is just speaking to the beating heart of that truth, right? That our society has a parasitic relationship to those young people and their power and their desire for excellence. Because it sounds like maybe yeah. you translated some of that fire into a desire for the, the work to be excellent. Does, does that sound right? Absolutely, man. Yeah, as you were just saying that, I was just thinking, you know, one of the only... I mean, you could call it one of the only real institutions, I think, that fosters that kind of fire and desire and, 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 and affirms a lot of the things that, you know, young men and uh, boys are growing up with today is hip-hop. You know, and maybe, and maybe that's down to I'm realizing that now. Maybe that's what's drawn me to it. Yeah, brother. Now, but you're, you're providing keys, man, in the writing. I want you to hear that. Because there's just a, such a sense of grand adventure to it. And not just an experimental facility, but really the sense that there's just an electric mind at work. And I think that's part of what folks need to see. They need to understand that there's a range of subject matters you could call on to create something called, you know, a contemporary American poem, right? And I think your work is as much a piece of this tradition as the people you've already named. Like, and I love how diverse your list was, man. Maggie Nelson and Whitman, right? Because Jean Jordan is someone else who claims Whitman actually as a literary ancestor, right? In in, in ways that I think are important because she's thinking, like, it sounds like you're thinking about a democratic project, right? That that poetry is part of this larger democratic project we're trying to build. And um, I think your work is foundational, man, in, in, in that way. Okay. Would you mind reading us another poem? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got one here ready. I, sh- I should add to that list that I gave you before, James Baldwin, huge influence on my work. Beautiful. So uh, I have this poem that, to be honest with you, in my opinion, I, I feel it's kind of rough, right? But I, I want to read it because... I want to I want to get it out of me, but also because I feel like it really suits what we've been talking about, and also like the, the closing out of this uh, of the interview, right? It's titled "American Prose Poem." American Prose Poem. Reader, lately I've been sick of you, feeling like you're not there. Here, real talk. Today's my birthday and the anniversary of Biggie's death. I woke up and got charged to hypnotize and party and bullshit. Wanted to set the day off right in this absence of another warm body to age inside. I've been hungry all my life. Even right now, I'm on the edge of breathing where I could dissolve into the ocean or eat an entire country whole, little bits of army fatigue hanging from the corner of my mouth. I'm feeling so reckless I could go out like O-Dog in that liquor store, busting at the Korean grocer. I forget that I'm Filipino so often, I get surprised when I look inside my blood. I'm in the motherfucking joint, I act like it. Locked in this box with my dogs, losing touch with the bodies I wrote poems to. In America, the fuck you want me to do? I've never known my place. Reader, you, I've never looked in the mirror and said, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be. Double-edged razor of my tapered flights. I'm insatiable. Even my shit talking is filled with reversals and caveats. It's all love, though, really. All love on this cold March day. All love while I listen to heavy metal for meditation, no silence. All love, 
And really, though, I'm feeling less lonely without you. Even while I sit here on fire, knowing like I've ever known anything, that this is the only way you'll ever hear me. That's gorgeous. Man, I've been hungry all my life. That's a... That's a bar, man. I, I need well, to I should, you know what? I should credit that though, because that, that's from a Kendrick Lamar song. I think it's like his uncle or somebody in the background saying it's, they use it as a sample in the song "Fear" off of his album "Damn." So I got, I got to credit that. <laughs> no, but even, but you bring it back though, right? With the "I'm insatiable," again, you got that thing going, man. Where the the poems, you can see the parallel lines working in them. I'm thinking about this this Baldwin piece, man, that you just brought in. And I think about when Baldwin talks about pessimism. He said, one minute remaining. Ah, he says, oh yeah, please do. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from Justin. victimized or extorted by this prisoner, please contact GTR customer service. To accept this call, press zero. Oh man, okay. Let's talk about James Baldwin just real quick. And then Wu-Tang. Okay. You like the world? Yeah, man. Wu Tang is great. What you mean? I mean, Ghostface. So here's my thing, right? Is when we fail to talk about contemporary poetry and hip hop together, I think we fail on a multiplicity of fronts, right? First, hip hop is the most popular poetry in the world, right? Secondly, I think some of the most clever, insightful, experimental lyricism is coming from hip hop. So Ghostface is one of my favorite examples of this, right? The late MF Doom is another. And when you look at what these cats are doing with, with imagery, with repetition, with synecdoche, it's, it's cutting edge. Uh, and, and I don't know why it's so difficult for folks to talk about it that way. Do you have a sense of that as a scholar of hip hop yourself? Yeah, I think so. I mean... Because when I was in high school, I started really getting into Wu-Tang. I mean, actually, I, even later on, I went to the Rock the Bells tour. It was Nas, Wu-Tang, Talib Kweli. I mean, it was Feral Maj, and it, it was like a life-changing experience, you know what I mean? One of the things about the experimental lyricism is if you start to listen to, I mean, a lot of different hip-hop, especially from back then, but I mean, if you listen to Wu, you have this group of people who were who were putting together rhyme schemes and doing these different things that like really had been more or less unheard of, and they were doing it as a group. And I think that you kind of have that energy sometimes in poetry, but I think that when you talk about the Wu, that when you talk about Wu Tang, you have this. It seems like there's like untapped potential there with this whole collective thing. To me, that there's there's a lot of uncovered ground there. I mean, you just put me in the mind. So so maybe we can stop here because I'm thinking about this this Baldwin piece, man. So James Baldwin says that he's not a pessimist. Because who will tell the children there is no hope, right? So I was wondering, Justin, if there was a message you could leave uh, for the young people who might read your work, who have already read your work and will encounter it in the future, what would it be? Uh, what power do you want to leave young people with in these poems? Be sure of yourself and never be too sure of yourself. I think it's easy to get caught up and be like, oh, I've made it or I've done really well here. And you should definitely revel in your accomplishments, but the work's never really done, you know? Don't let anybody tell you to stop because you got you going, man. No, I love that. To be sort of focused and relentless. And that's the other side of that hunger you were talking about, it sounds like to me, right? In the beginning of of the poem, it sounds like, a material deprivation, right? Unless we forget like a quarter of, of children in this country live in poverty, right? A quarter of our children are, are hungry in that way. But I think too, the, the spirit of that thing, man, is like you always have to 
to the best of your ability, survive your own longing, right? You have to do the best to pursue what you dream of. Yeah, I mean, that's tough. I, I, mean, I find it hard to give advice sometimes. I think that's why I was so short with that. But uh, the idea of excellence, in a sense, is, is capitalist, right? So, I mean, on one hand, you do want to be able to get past that and say, well, no, you know, what you put forth is enough. Uh, and that's a big match, too, to say what you, who you are and what you do is enough. Um, but at the same token, you know, you got to be able to, to look at what you're doing and, and then ask yourself, am I doing the best I can? Can I contribute? And I think that's the biggest thing, too, is how much am I contributing? That's been central for me in, in, in making my work is, you know, what am I contributing to this as a tradition? I don't mean just, you know, for myself and my own career. That's so loving, though. I mean, it doesn't strike me... Or maybe it's a particular and peculiar kind of love that we've cultivated together under capitalism, right? But I, I love the idea that the way you think of hunger is, well, what can I give to the people? And I love that. Now, granted, I think you and I clearly have some some shared affinities for hip-hop, for example, right? And the competition in hip-hop is all about hunger. Like, you can't, you can't listen to a Kendrick Lamar record and tell me that brother's not committed to excellence, because I hear what you're saying. You also want, especially young people, to feel like, well, I'm, I'm enough. And at the same time, you want to, I think, help cultivate a, a striving for something better that's not about like more money, more flash, or anything like that. But it's just about waking up every day and, and doing work that you love. And I think a lot of that goes back to the, that line you had mentioned in the poem about where it talked about the lemon tree and the peach. Because I mean... You got to be able to an extent to make a living, you know what I mean? At least in my opinion, from what I've seen from, you know, contemporary poetry, there is in some regards a call toward, you know, don't worry about the money, just like do what you love, which is fine, but also like people can make a living. And if you're from the hood or if you're from a position where you don't really have the luxury to make that choice, then you need to be exceptional and you need to be excellent, you know what I mean? So there's that pressure, but... You know, how, how are you going to respond to that, I think, is the thing. And what, you know, what work are you doing that's going to contribute, but at the same time still, you know, pave a way for you? Yeah, I take that question super seriously. And I'm just going to be honest with you, man. I mean, when I told my mom that I was going to be a poet, she laughed in my face. And part of it was that she, yeah. just, she grew up hard, right? And she said, I mean, I sent you to these schools so you'd be able to feed yourself, so you could be okay, and if I can keep it a buck with you, man, what you were saying earlier about language arts, that really hit for me, right? Because I think part of what we're not giving both readers of poetry and maybe young people who study the literary arts right now is a real good vision of a path forward to feeding themselves with literature. And, and I think we need to create that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what it is is we miss a lot, out a lot on the value of language as a society. I mean, it's foundational to poetry, but... Now we're just so information-driven, which is fine. I mean, capitalism and all that. Again, you got to make a living. I think that you, we have to find a way to strike some sort of healthy balance between that and not necessarily make it you know, profitable to be a poet, but maybe look at what it means to be a poet and expand that. And I think that's what I mean when you ask me what my wildest dreams were for poetry and for literature. And I, I would hope that that would be one of the things, that when you say, I'm going to be a poet, that you're not laughed at, that people can assume that you actually mean so much more than just... I'm going to go and write poems and, uh, and talk about things. Right, right. And I guess part of my concern is that I don't always want that to be by necessity. My students that just want to be engineers, they can just do that. <laughs> you know, like that can be their, their, their one real thing. Yeah. But those are also the very same students that I have to give your poems 
right? Because the kind of engineer I want them to become, right, in my wildest dreams is one that's read some Justin Monson poems and has a broader sense of the world. And I think we just need frameworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say absolutely. I mean, part of part of the thing behind that, I think, is being able to link poetry somehow to these, not necessarily these other professions, but that's where those references and those things come in to be able to say, like, oh, I've read this. And it's not just, they're not just these very specific or um, these silos that exist independent of one another. Like, no, they all, they're all part of culture, they're all part of the society that we're part of. So therefore, engineering and poetry should be able to exist within the same realm, possibly. Yes. And maybe I'm too utopian in that way, but I really do believe it uh, just from experience even. Like my students, a lot of them aren't English majors. They're computer science majors. They're political science majors uh, and chem majors. And they come to the class because they know they need something else too. And I think poetry can do that in our society, riddled as it is, contaminated as it is by capitalism, right? And and the ways that capitalism has marred our dreams and marred our visions of what a worthwhile life is. Man, I have to just, I guess I have to believe that, you know, cause it's, it's done that for me. And I feel like the poems really helped save my life. And so I, I appreciate you, man. Cause you, I think you do that for people, you know? I think we all can, but you're doing it right now. I hope so. I'm still trying to do it for myself, man. I'm trying to get up out. You know what I mean? Like, that's true. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's real. <laughs> yeah, we got we to gotta do it yeah. for ourselves first, right? Or ain't, ain't no poems coming. That's Clifton, right? The work is not my life. My life is my life. Yeah. I just appreciate you, man. And I appreciate your work. And I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. It means a lot. No, I, I, I definitely appreciate it, man. I'm, just real quick, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was in 10th grade, no, I was in 11th grade, a lot of my friends were getting charged with uh, like MIP, you know, minor in possession, you know, a little minor drug stuff or being at parties, being drunk. And I remember telling a good friend of mine, I was laughing at him. We were in the hallway at school and I said, man, you guys keep getting hemmed up. You guys keep getting uh, arrested for this, this, this little stuff. Like, what are you doing? You know, you're going to mess up a good thing. If I ever get arrested, I'll probably end up going to prison for it. And then like a year later, I'm in prison. I'm like, oh man, wow. And, and that's like a horrible thing to say, but um, it kind of helped me realize, oh wow, the things that I, that, the languages I use and the things that I say, I, I can make those things true. So when I started writing, I, one of the things was Poetry Magazine. I, I said, Poetry Magazine has been one of my goals from the beginning, just as a benchmark to prove to myself in writing. And now, you know, we're here having this conversation. So I, I just, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity, man, and, and getting to talk with you and meet you. So. Of course, brother. It's been an honor. And I think we got a lot of work to do at Poetry Magazine and elsewhere to even be worthy of the work you're doing, man. So... Trust me, the the honor is is all mine, and I think I speak for the other editors when I say the honor is ours. American inmate. Inmate in cuffs, inmate in curls, inmate born in a small world. Inmate goes to prom with neighbor, inmate tweets about it later. Inmate bleeds from cut from shave, inmate in timeout, you've misbehaved. Inmate raves, inmate craves, inmate studies for good grades. Inmate of number, not of name. Inmate in race for power, fame. Inmate falls asleep before the end. Inmate drives to mall with friends. Inmate holding jury instructions. Inmate still working in construction. Inmate with sun, inmate with gun. Inmate on vacation, inmate on run. 
Inmate drowning in student loans. Inmate needs second mortgage on home. Inmate so tired of being alone. Inmate sits down to pen a poem. Inmate in the house. Inmate in cell. Inmate has cancer. Inmate gets well. Inmate fights. Inmate writes. Inmate daydreams right at night. Inmate kisses. Inmate fucks. Inmate seems to have bad luck. Inmate doesn't say it much, but inmate thinks, I've had enough. Inmate with baby growing inside. Inmate pleading, it's not mine. Inmate saving to retire. Inmate with the soul on fire. Inmate with body, tight and young. Inmate waits in line for gum. Inmate injured by contact sports. Inmate mows the lawn in jorts. Inmate in love. And yes, love back. Inmate killed while driving black. Inmate longing for commitment. Inmate begs for reduced sentence. Inmate in prison. Worst degree. Inmate wonders what is free. A big thanks to Justin Revias Monson and Joshua Bennett. Bennett's the author of the poetry collections Being Property Once Myself, Ode, and The Sobbing School. He's recited his works at the Sundance Film Festival, the NAACP Image Awards, and President Obama's Evening of Poetry and Music at the White House. His first work of narrative nonfiction, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, is forthcoming from Knopf. Justin Revius Monson was a 2018 Penn America Writing for Justice Fellow. He's working on his first collection of poetry called American Inmate, a mixtape. His poetry has been published or is forthcoming in Hayden's Fairy Review, The Offing, The Nation, and Poetry Magazine. You can read Notes for If I Fade Away and two other poems by Monson in the February 2021 issue of Poetry, in print and online. This podcast is produced by me, Rachel James, and I would love to know what you think of this new season. The best way to let us know is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it helps other people find the show. Thanks to Irreversible Entanglements, Alabaster de Plume, and Rob Masaryk for the music. All these songs were released by the Chicago-born record label International Anthem. And lastly, a little plug for Poetry, the magazine. It's actually a great deal. If you go to poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer, you can get one full year of issues for $20. That's basically a book of poetry a month for a whole year for 20 bucks. Go to poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.